right, please open your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verse 6 through verse 15. And I'm confident that most of y'all know, page 5 of your worship guide, there's the sermon title and text and a three-point outline and some reflection questions. So as I always say, make use of that if it helps you stay engaged and attentive. That's the point of that, that page in your worship guide to help you really invest in what God is revealing to us in the sermon passage. Um, I'm going to invite you to stand as I read for us from God's active and uh, inerrant and living word. Look at Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people of Israel, each to his own inheritance to take possession of the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of his inheritance in timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Y'all can have. Our Father, we pray that you would author and perfect faith in us, which means that you cultivate an appetite in us to have an authentic, very deep and lasting relationship with you. That's what you want. That's what primarily you want. You want to be our our God, not just a general powerful deity, but a God who has an intimate relationship with his people. You say that you, our maker, our, our husband, you say that you don't just look at us as your creatures, but you're actually affectionate toward us as a friend. You call us friends. We pray that you would help us to really be impacted by that truth in a way that's, that's fresh and personal and definitive today. And we pray that you would be honored and glorified and that we would have uh, more and more joy because of this good work that you do in the lives of sinners saved by your grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Confident that most of y'all are familiar with the story, probably more accurate to say the saga of Kung Fu Panda. Um, the story is about this panda named Poe, and uh, what you got to know about Poe is that he knows a lot about kung fu, right? He studied it, 
and uh, he has posters of Kung Fu masters on his bedroom wall, but he doesn't really know Kung Fu. Uh, So he has action figures of the legendary Kung Fu experts and martial art, uh, you know, the best in, in, in the land, you know, martial artists, but he's never experienced for himself the rigors and the joys of actually participating in Kung Fu and practicing it himself. But then, if you're familiar with the story, you know Poe unexpectedly ends up in the real world of, of Kung Fu. And he meets his heroes, these legendary masters, right? Tigris and Crane and Mantis and Viper and Monkey, and he's with them. In, in person, and he's training with them. And most importantly, he is with this other character named Master Shifu, who forces Poe to know the rigors and the real-life experiences and disciplines of Kung Fu. And what he comes to find is that this world of Kung Fu, um, it is way more robust and painstaking than he realized. And there are very real enemies, and there's a real war being waged, And there is actually deep joy and pleasure to be experienced in this world. And that's what God is telling us about himself and about his kingdom in this passage. Or another way of saying this is God wants us to realize that it's it's not sufficient for us to be followers of Jesus in name only. We can't be Christians in name only. We can't be nominal believers. We actually have to engage in a real very robust and rigorous relationship with God. God wants us to know him. It says in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that you would know God, really know him, not just know about him. And we see in verse 7 that there were people who really had a genuine, uh, deep relationship and a rigorous history with God. So it says in verse 7, there were, there were people who served the Lord all the days of Joshua and, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. And these people had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel, right? Ever since God had pulled them out of the land of slavery and Egypt and how he had brought them through the wilderness and he had brought them into the promised land, they had this very authentic experience of knowing who God is and what he's like. Now, let's be really clear. Verse 7 is not an invitation to romanticize and venerate past generations. Sometimes we have a tendency of doing this. We'll, we'll look back at a past generation and we'll say, oh, it was the good old days. As if just by being old, those days were intrinsically better or, or more upright or more rich. Uh, We need to clarify, all generations have commendable characters, which the Bible would say these characters are worthy of esteem and imitation. But then there are also characters that distract us from God and cause us to drift away from God. And furthermore, we should clarify that some of the most celebrated characters in history and in any particular generation have turned out to be the worst examples People who who the religious community would have esteemed and said, these are our leaders. These are the people we should be emulating. Well, that's not always the people that God says we should be emulating. So the best example of this is in the days of Jesus, who did the religious community think they ought to be looking up to and esteeming and emulating? Who was that? Well, it was the Pharisees. 
In Jesus' day, people looked at these conservative, pious, rule-following, godly people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they thought, these are the leaders. These are the people we ought to be following. But then God himself showed up. Jesus came, and he looked at those people, and he said, they're actually the sons of Satan. And when you follow them, you're becoming twice the sons of hell as they themselves are. They aren't actually the, the godliest examples according to God himself. So the key for any generation is to look around, to survey your community, and ask yourself, who is actually emphasizing the stuff that God emphasizes in Scripture? And furthermore, who is actually living it out? So a really good example of this is found in John chapter 4, in the most unlikely of places, in Samaria. You've got to understand that back in Jesus' day, if you said, this person's from Samaria, they're a Samaritan, uh, that was like calling them a bad name. You see this in the Gospels when, when Jesus' uh, opponents want to insult him. They'll say, you're demonic and a Samaritan. That's like the worst thing you could say to somebody. And Jesus ventures into Samaria and he meets this woman at the well of Jacob. And, and what happens in her life is actually where God puts the emphasis. Because just like y'all, this woman is living in fear. She's hiding. She's ashamed of her past. And so she's trying to avoid people. She's trying not to be seen and known. She's being very cautious about her relationships, just hiding. And Jesus invades her life. He exposes her, right? He tells her the stuff that she is terrified for anyone to know. And she understands that God is not exposing her in order to condemn her. He's exposing her revealing who she is so that she can embrace the most emphatic truth in the Bible, which is God loves you no matter what. You, be, you are naked and completely unashamed, not because you haven't committed sin, but because he is going to atone for your sin. He isn't coming to condemn you. He's coming to save you. And we're going to have to deal with all this shameful, guilty, fearful stuff in you. And then what do we see? After she's impacted by that most emphatic truth, what does she do? She goes to her community. She goes into the midst of all these people she's been hiding from for years, and she boldly, brazenly says, you need to come and meet Jesus for yourself. Don't just know about God, but come meet him personally. He'll tell you everything you ever did. He'll totally expose you for who you really are, and that is good news because he really loves you. He's not coming to punish you and condemn you. He's coming to save you. That is glorious good news. And so this passage is saying there were people like that in the, the days of Joshua. Joshua's, Joshua was this way. The elders of Joshua's day, many of them really did know God and they joyfully trusted God. They actually lived by faith in God. And the Bible says this is worthy of commendation. There's this chapter in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11. You've probably read it many times in your walk with the Lord. And, and this chapter multiple times says these, these characters in whom God is performing his workmanship, there are things about these characters that are commendable. And God's laying emphasis on this. So, for example, if you go home later today and you read Hebrews 11, you're going to come across a character named Abraham. Abraham, you're probably familiar with that name. Now, we need to clarify, what was Abraham really commended for? Well, he's a, he's a great patriarch. So maybe, 
Maybe we think, you know, he's probably going to be commended for being an expert theologian, right? Probably teaching at the local seminary, um, going to gospel conferences and being the keynote speaker, uh, writing reformed theological books and publishing those for the world to read. Well, I hate to break it to you. Abraham wasn't probably what we would consider a reformed Presbyterian theologian came out of a pagan background, his, his thoughts and opinions on things would probably be a bit different, a bit unexpected from what you would probably believe. Um, but what Abraham and his wife Sarah are most commended for is simply waiting. It's kind of an anticlimactic thing to be commended for. God had promised Sarah and, his, and her husband Abraham uh, a child, a child, this promised child named Isaac. And they waited for years, and then years more, and decades, and then decades more. And they just waited and waited. And they didn't wait perfectly, but they genuinely did wait on the Lord. And God says, that is worthy of commendation. So, so God would point you to people like Abraham or Joshua and these elders, and he'd say, look at how they trust me. Even when it doesn't make sense to them. Even when they're confused by what following God means in their everyday practical life experience. And follow them. It's worthy of commendation. Another character you'll see in Hebrews 11 is this guy Moses. Now Moses, you have to understand, was raised in the palace of Egypt. Right? He had access to all kinds of resources, all kinds of political connections. So maybe you would assume that Moses would be commended for pulling off some big building project, right? Like building a big, impressive facility in the name of God and for the advancement of God's kingdom, right? We're, we're into that. We think that that's really impressive. Like when people like renovate their homes, we, we go gaga for that. We think, man, this is impressive when people decorate and build fancy, impressive facilities. And Moses had the resources and the ability to maybe do that. But that's not what he's committed for. It says Moses, the really impressive thing that, that God was pleased with is that Moses actually left the palace life in Egypt in, in order to be mistreated with the slave class in Egypt, the Israelites, because God was with the slaves. He wasn't with, with, with the aristocracy. He was with the slaves. And simply put, the goal of your life is to be with God. Because you're supposed to know him, and you can't know God unless you're really with God. So let me pause and ask you all this question. Who do you know, who do you really personally know, who, who is perhaps engaged in a rigorous, real relationship with God? They don't just have theological facts, you know, compiled about God. They, they know God, and they engage in a real relationship with God. Imagine for a second that, that you're living back in the days of the first two kings of Israel, King Saul and King David. Imagine you're a servant in the palace or maybe you're in the army and you get to know the first king of Israel, King Saul. And you'd look at King Saul and you'd say, well, he knows, he knows about God. I mean, he, goes, he goes to the religious uh, gatherings, he prays, he has meetings with the prophet Samuel, he does the religious traditions. And then comes along this guy, David, and you're getting a very different vibe from David. Like when David is, is wrestling through some weighty issue in life, he'll go off by himself and he will wrestle with God about that issue. And he will, he will say very candidly what's on his mind to God. He will emote. He will say things to God that seem kind of borderline inappropriate. He's raw. He's very candid. 
And then he'll come back from those retreats with God and he'll have these psalms, right? These diary entries. And he will give them to the worship director and then the, the people of God will gather like we're gathered today and, and David will make us all read his diary entries and, and appropriate them for ourselves, right? Because God has this systematic desire for you to get in on a real relationship. And he'll use guys like David or guys like Joshua to pull you along that, that path toward a real relationship with him. Because God doesn't want to settle for you simply knowing about him. He wants you to know him. Let me ask you another question. Who do you know who has actually taken some risks in life, maybe, maybe done some stuff that feels kind of reckless to the watching world because they really do want to walk in the way of Jesus? Not just know about the way of Jesus, but really take some risks. Trust God in real ways. Some of y'all know Wes and Sage Andrews. They used to live here in East Charlotte. They had to take a job down in Georgia, but they were back a couple weeks ago. I know many of you saw them. They came to church on Sunday. Um, when they were back in town a few weeks ago, um, I had a, a, just a, a wonderful time reminiscing with, with Wes and Sage about how they were the first people I knew to choose to move to East Charlotte and, and make their abode here. And, and Wes was reminding me of the story of how they ended up in this kind of, uh, you know, run-down, wonky place called East Charlotte. He said, well, we were working with a realtor to look for a house, and uh, we found this, this house that they ended up moving to here on the east side. And when they told their realtor that they would like to see this house, their realtor said, oh, no, I, there must be a mistake. You, you don't want to live on the east side. Uh, I think she called it the wrong side of Independence Boulevard. <laughs> you, don't, you don't live over there. And they said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, yeah, the crime is bad and uh, the school systems aren't great. And it's, it's an eclectic community. Um, you know, so she's trying to be delicate about it. Well, there's people from all over the place. We tend to like to live in uniform neighborhoods and homogenous environments. And, you know, it's just a lot of different people from a, a lot of different walks of life. And, um, yeah, I just, I just don't think that's the place you want to be living. That's not a good spot. You know, East Charlotte was a trendy, bougie place back in, like, I think the 80s and 90s, but it's Ichabod. You know what Ichabod means? The glory has departed. Eastland Mall got torn down. I'm not sure if y'all knew that. It's, it's not the trendy place to live anymore. And uh, Wes and Sage, well, be that as it may, uh, this is where we would like to live, right? Because amongst other reasons, in some big primary sense, this is where God likes to hang out. And we, and we don't have to guess at this. So when God took on flesh and dwelt on planet Earth, do you know where he, he was raised? He was raised in a town called Nazareth. Um, you know when you, when you drive into town, sometimes you'll have a sign as you get into the city limits, and it'll give you the name of the town, and there's like a slogan. So yesterday, my family and I drove out to Albemarle, and you have to pass through Locust, and it, there's a sign that says, Locust, a city with a soul. That has a nice ring to it. So if you were to enter Nazareth back in Jesus' day, you know what it was said? Welcome to Nazareth. Nothing good comes from here. That's, that's God is, is God, so he can choose to live wherever he wants, right? He's not stuck in any one particular spot. When God became man, where did he choose to live? Nazareth. And even after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to his throne, he still primarily referenced in the book of Acts and the book of Revelation as Jesus of Nazareth. It's crazy. Jesus chose to spend time in this place, Samaria. I've already told you. Nobody wanted to go to Samaria. But Jesus says in John 4, I have to go there. 
And all the Jewish people that would have overheard him say that would say, no, you don't. We have avoided Samaria successfully for decades, for hundreds of years. You don't have to go there. Jesus would say, well, I do. Because the will of my father, one of the primary, most emphatic things my father wants me to do is to go to these places that are hard for, for you know, most of society to go. And so we're supposed to look at people who have rigorous relationship with God. They actually know God. They wrestle with God. They take risks for God. And we're supposed to esteem them and imitate them. We're supposed to become like them. You see Paul say that in Acts chapter 26. He says, I wish that all of you would become like me. Really think about what, what that would mean for your life if you became like Paul. Well, you, you're running the risk, at least, of you know, going on these reckless missionary journeys, being thrown into prison for your faith. Like Your life is getting pretty hard if you become like Paul. But Paul says, I, I want you to really have an intense, intimate, personal relationship with God. And, and whatever kind of impact that has on your life, so be it. Because knowing God is the chief goal of your life. That's eternal life, to know God. The flip side of this is if you don't, if you don't pursue a real relationship with God, you're dooming yourself to a life of nominalism, which is to say you're settling for merely knowing about God. And that's what we see in verse 10. It says there arose another generation after Joshua and the elders of his day this generation did not know the Lord and they did not know the work that he had done for Israel. Now let's be really clear. Verse 10 is not talking about people who would say, ah, God never heard of them. Who? The Lord? The whole, the whole story of the Exodus, right? The story of the wilderness wanderings. We have no clue what you're talking about. That's not what it's saying. The, these people, like, like many people in America today would say, no, we know the stories of the Bible. We've heard about God. Uh, these people are perhaps even pretty theologically astute. They may have Calvin's commentaries on their bookshelves at home, right? They may have Wayne Grudem's systematic theology on their bookshelf. They may be very theologically in tune, right, in terms of head knowledge. They might even be morally sensitive and, and pious and go to church. They might enroll their kids in Christian institutions and programs. They may even fret about their kids' safety and sanctification. You know, they get on the website and read reviews about the PG-13 movie before allowing their kids to see it. They may be all of those things. But the bottom line is they are more engrossed. They are more infatuated with the political, economic, and social trends of their historical moment than they are with the spiritual emphasis and authority of God. So, so they have this nominal connection to Yahweh. Their most intense curiosity and interest is not aligned with God. Their most painstaking commitments are not aligned with God. Their most intense curiosity and commitment is aligned with college football or decorating their home, or endless amounts of entertainment consumption, or working out, eating healthy, getting fit, you know, their, their body image, or the next fun thing, or the next cool vacation, whatever. That's, that's who is being referenced in verse 10. In verse 11, it says, the people did what was evil in God's sight, specifically the evil thing they were doing was serving the Baals. Now, in the days of Joshua and the judges, God's people were explicitly commanded to tear down the altars of the Baals. So, so not only were they not supposed to have these sort of alignment uh, alliances with 
the Baals, but they're supposed to tear down the altars of the Baals. Because number one, there were some extremely corrupt realities connected to Baal worship. It was kind of like in the days of Martin Luther King Jr. You know, in the days of MLK, there was a very um, popular movement called segregation. It was the law of the land, and it was, frankly, the preferred popular way of life for many people in, in Birmingham and Montgomery and all these places in the South where MLK, uh, you know, lived his life. And uh, Martin Luther King looked at that and he says, I am against it. I'm not just going to, to adopt it as my way of life because it's corrupt. It's oppressive. It breeds dehumanization and injustice. And so I'm going to seek to resist it. I protest it. I'm going to try to tear it down because it's actually destructive for society. It's like a cancer. So it's worth fighting against. And that's what God wants his people to do with these very popular ideas of Baal worship. He says these things, these Baal worship uh, opportunities that you have, they're actually destructive. Secondly, God's people, if they don't tear down the altars of Baal, they have this history of being allured by Baal worship, being enticed by it. They don't have the willpower to, to hold up against it. And God says that is incredibly unhealthy. And so you have to fight against it. Because if you just allow it to exist, the odds are, the evidence suggests that you're going to be inordinately attracted to it. You can't handle it. God views Baal worship like the Israelites having a mistress. God says in the prophet Isaiah, I am your maker, I am your husband. And for you to have this relationship with Baal is like you preferring to have this mistress in the marriage. And God says, I will not tolerate that. That is not how this relationship is going to work. All throughout scripture, the emphasis is on worship being specifically, exclusively reserved for God. He's not going to allow us to have Baal in the relationship as well. You see this all throughout scripture, Acts chapter 17, uh, the apostle Paul, he travels to Athens, Greece, and he walks around uh, the city of Athens, Greece, and he, he, uh, he uh, preaches a sermon. He, he speaks up in front of everybody in this very public place, and he says this, he says, I perceive that in every way you men of Athens are very religious. Because I walked around and I passed along uh, all these, these objects of worship that you have here for sale and, and for, for worshiping in your city. And I found an altar with an inscription that says, to an unknown God. And so he uses that as an opportunity to preach to them about the only true and living God. And he says, what you worship as unknown, I am going to proclaim to you very definitively. I, I'm going to clarify it for you. The only true and living God is the maker of everything. And you must, it's not optional, you must seek him and feel your way toward him. Like grapple with who is God. Wrestle with that question. Feel your way toward God and find him. Seek him and find him. And he says, and I've got good news. He's actually not far from any of you because in him you live and move and have your being. You must know this God. You must find your way toward him, feel your way toward him, and know him. Now, knowing God versus serving the Baals or having any other God before the only true and living God, that is the difference between unquenchable joy and terrible distress. 
We see in this passage, the last verse here, the people were in terrible distress. We're told in verse 12, they abandoned the Lord. They go after other gods. In verse 15, it says they're in terrible distress. It begs the question, why are they in such terrible distress? Um, I don't know if y'all have read Uncle Tom's Cabin. It's a, it's a wonderful book. If you've never read it, you should read it. There's this character in the story of Uncle Tom's Cabin named Marie St. Clair. She's, in my opinion, the worst character in the book, even worse than Simon Legree, or at least they compete for worst. And Marie St. Clair, what makes her the worst is that she postures herself as a Christian. If you, if you saw Marie St. Clair and you said, are you a follower of Jesus? She would say, yes, I'm a good Southern Christian. You know, I am a follower of Jesus. But if you lived with her, she was always whining and complaining about how hard she had it. She was always in terrible distress, right? Everything about her life, she was the victim. She had it the hardest. Nobody understood her. Nobody could get, you know, just how bad she had it. She was just consciously, constantly troubled about everything, just in terrible distress all the time. And, and this is in contrast with people who actually did have it hard, like her daughter, Eva. Her daughter, Eva, is, is like dying from, from a, a terminal illness. And Eva actually has this unquenchable joy. Or what about Tom, the, the slave, the main character of the book? He's enslaved, and yet he finds joy in Jesus, even amidst his trials. And then there's this character, Marie St. Clair, who is just always in terrible distress. God would say, the reason my people are in terrible distress, the, the bedrock reason is described in Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, God says, my people have changed the glory of God for that which does not profit. So be appalled, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, because my people have forsaken me. They have forsaken the fountain of living water, and they have carved for themselves cisterns that are broken and hold no water. And that's why they are in deep distress. And some of you might be sitting here thinking, but Tyler, you skipped over verse 14. Verse 14 says that they're in distress because God gave them over to plunderers and they were being harassed by their enemies. So maybe they are in distress because their circumstances are bad. I mean, that sounds pretty distressing, Get, being given over to plunderers, being harassed by their enemies. That's the reason they're in terrible distress. Their circumstances dictate their distress to which i would say that's not true i will respectfully disagree our, our circumstances don't breed deep distress maybe momentary secondary and the reason i say that is because think back to that character i mentioned earlier king david was king david harassed by his enemies y yeah he was harassed by his enemies and he wrestled with his feelings about that with God. But as he sought the Lord, as he, as he groped his way toward God and wrestled with God about his harsh circumstances and the harassment of his enemies, what did he find? You can read his diary entries. It's in the Psalms. He found joy. He found this unquenchable reservoir of joy. He found the fountain of living water, which was to know God. Knowing God was a bigger more joy-oriented reality to him than even the very severe harassment of his enemies. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says this of the first century church. People who actually know the Lord, it says, if you know God, 
Here's what's true for you. You can joyfully accept the plundering of your property because you know that you yourselves have a better possession and an abiding one. So this passage is talking about plundering. And that seems like the worst thing that could ever happen to us, especially as, as you know, consumeristic, individualistic Americans. We think nobody's ever going to come and take my property. That would be the absolute worst thing. That is an encroachment on my rights. And I agree, it would be bad. But according to Hebrews 10, you could joyfully accept the plundering of your property if you actually know God and have a deep, real relationship with him. You don't have to be in terrible distress, even if you're being plundered, apparently. You can joyfully accept the plundering of your property if it comes to that, if you know God. In 2 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul says, God himself sent a messenger of Satan to harass me. I'm being harassed by a messenger of Satan. And he's being honest. He says, look, I didn't like it. I prayed. I pleaded three times with God to take it away. But God eventually came to me and said, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul, my power is going to be made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul says, okay, well, if that's true, if, if the only true and living God is going to perfect his power in my weakness, and he wants to put the emphasis not on delivering me from the hard circumstance, but on the sufficiency that is found exclusively in Christ, then I will actually boast in my suffering and weakness. That is a shocking thing to say. But that's what the Bible consistently says throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. The power of knowing God, not being a nominal Christian where you just know some things about God, but to know him, to, to seek him, uh, to find your way toward him, to cling to him, that is where you're going to find unquenchable joy. The circumstances aren't the problem. For these folks here in this passage, their decision to abandon God and their awareness that, that God is rightly outraged, that's the problem. So we need to acknowledge that we're in a similar predicament. A lot in our life, we find ourselves in sort of a similar place. We run after false gods. We, we commit the sin of idolatry, right? We don't stay totally focused and committed on God. We don't grope toward God and wrestle with God as much as we should, as much as would be good for us. So what are we supposed to do? What should we do? Jesus makes it really clear in the Gospels, we should come to this meal. We should come back to the Gospel. We, we, we will wander off from time to time. We never commend that, but we need to acknowledge that. We are prone to wander. And when we do that, God says, come back. Come back home. Don't wallow in guilt for having done it again. Don't, don't shower yourself with shame Come back. Come back to the gospel, the truth that, yes, you're a sinner, but God wants to save you. He wants to give his life for you. The only way that the outrage of God against our sin, the wrath of God is satisfied, is right here in the shed blood, the broken body of Jesus. And only if this really gets inside of you will you overcome your tendency toward nominalism. You realize that? You can't just know about what Jesus has done. That's why we, that's why we have this meal. Uh, we have to physically, visually take the truth of God and say, that has to get inside of me. I can't just have a religious category for God. I have to have a real relationship with God. And so what Christ has accomplished can't just be something I know about. It has to be something I know. 
personally, intimately. And so in a moment, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're desperate for Jesus, if you think, I need Jesus to save me from myself, then you're going to come up here and you're going to take the, the symbols, the sacraments of the gang. I need it to live inside of me. I need an intimate relationship with God. And as you, as you wrestle with this, which you should do, you should wrestle with this, you should examine yourself. And when you examine yourself, you're, you're, you're discovering two things. Number one, that you are way worse uh, than you tend to think. You, you really are. There, there are just all kinds of ways where you are, you are not being honest with yourself, right? We're, we're really critical of other people. We tend to let ourselves off the hook on a, lot of, on a lot of days, on a lot of levels. And what this meal forces you to do is it forces you to see, wow, I am deeply, deeply depraved. There are so many dimensions of my depravity that I don't even know about yet. It's like this cave system in my soul, and there are all kinds of nooks and crannies in there that I haven't even been to yet. So my need is very, very severe, way deeper, way bigger than I will ever really get to the bottom of. That's number one. The other part of examining yourself is understand that Jesus is there. So, so there's no part of that depraved cave system in your soul that Jesus isn't in. He, he's there. God pursues sinners. And so as you're examining yourself, you need to acknowledge you are way worse than you thought, but you are way more loved than you ever fathomed. And if you find that that's true for you, you think, yeah, that's true. I'm a, I'm a sinner, but God wants to come and save me. He loves me. Then this meal is for you. If you're not there yet, I need to warn you because the Bible tells us that this meal comes with a warning. If you don't actually believe in Jesus, you know, you just want to wallow in the misery of all your shame and guilt, but you don't really want to accept the, the love and the atoning blood of Christ, then if you were to partake of this meal, you would be eating and drinking judgment to yourself. So our, our invitation to you, if you're not a Christian, is to, to sit with it, to wrestle with it, and to really, you know, explore that. Maybe reach out to somebody after the service and say, you know, help me process this more. But if you are desperate for Christ, if you're hungry for what only Christ can, can supply for you, then you are wholeheartedly invited to come to partake of this meal. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your sufficiency not our sufficiency. We thank you that your grace is what dominates us and defines us, not our accomplishments, not our ability to atone for ourselves, but the atonement that we have in Christ alone. Uh, whether it's the days of Joshua or the days of Moses or whether it's 2023, the fact is this, this is the focal point of all creation, even the living creatures in the heavenly places, even the angels, they long to look into this. This is the most staggering, scandalous, joyful truth that God wants to dwell with, with man. And in order for you to do that, in order for you to have your desire, you have to save us from our sin, which is what we're about to partake of. We're about to be reminded of what, of what you paid uh, in order to ransom us and to irrevocably position us as your adopted children. And we ask that you would give us appetites for that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.